Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Sarah Lynn Colucci was born to parents Barbara and Ronnie Moore and was described as vibrant, headstrong, and loyal. She would marry Michael Vieira, a contractor she had previously dated in high school, but he unfortunately died in 2007 of accidental stab wounds, leaving Sarah and the couple's eight-year-old daughter, Bishop, both devastated. Following his death, Sarah began having frequent episodes of depression and bouts of spontaneity. But there were times that Sarah remained her bubbly self. Her loved ones continued to describe her as strong-willed, with a temper that could burn hot at times. They said she expected a lot of others, but never let people take advantage of her. She then met Michael Colucci, who had a seven-year-old daughter named Milan, after a mutual friend set the couple up on a blind date. Michael and his family were successful owners of Colucci Jewelers in Somerville, South Carolina, a town 30 miles northwest of Charleston. Sarah and Michael continued to date and eventually married in June of 2011. However, the marriage wasn't all sunshine and rainbows because Michael was said to be very volatile with a short fuse. Despite the couple having a rocky marriage, Sarah continued to be loyal to him and even allowed him to adopt her daughter, Bishop. Sarah had previously bounced between careers, working as a flight attendant, medical billing, and real estate. After marrying Michael, she began working at the jewelry shop and created a play space for the two young girls to play while there. But due to bad business decisions, money became tight and the couple was facing significant financial losses. They fell months behind on their daughter's private school tuition and their electricity and water were shut off several times. Their Monk's Corner home, financed by Sarah's mother, eventually went into foreclosure and Sarah became addicted to alcohol. Rumors also began circulating amongst their friends that she and Michael were using drugs. On the evening of May 20, 2015, Michael and Sarah stopped by the jewelry store's warehouse in the 2200 block of North Main Street because she needed to use the restroom. Before arriving at the warehouse, Sarah angrily called her mother and said, Mama, it's drugs, but didn't go into further details on what that meant. She also shared her ultimate plan, which involved chaperoning her daughter's field trip to Myrtle Beach the next day and attending her fifth grade graduation on Friday. Then Saturday morning, she would take her daughter and leave Michael. Not long after hanging up with her mother, Sarah was dead. Michael claimed that after arriving at the warehouse, Sarah exited the car to slip through the fence to use the restroom as she had done many times before while he remained in the car on the phone. He said when she didn't return, he went to check on her and found her in the warehouse doorway with a garden hose around her neck. Michael called 911 
and said that his wife had hanged herself with the hose. Michael. They're on the way, okay? Please. I, I, I need to figure out what she did. She tried to hang herself with a hose. However, medical evidence collected from the scene would not match Michael's account of the evening. When the emergency personnel arrived at the scene, they found Sarah's body lying on the cement near the warehouse and the chain link fence. They also found a strand of her blonde hair on top of the hose that was looped around a six-foot fence post near the building. One end of the hose sat under her body, and her knees and one of her feet were found with scrape marks on them. Deputies noted that Michael's lip was bloody and swollen, and he had scrapes on his knuckles, wrist, and arm. Also strangely, the couple's Toyota Prius was parked only about 20 feet away from the warehouse with a clear, unobstructed view of the fence, meaning he would have clearly been able to see her hanging herself. Toxicology tests showed her blood alcohol level at the time of her death was 0.23, and she had cocaine and Xanax in her system. He told authorities that she was depressed and obsessed with her late husband's death, but her parents disputed this. Michael stayed with Sarah's parents at their Berkeley County home for several weeks following her death. However, their relationship soured after his mother-in-law said he told her several conflicting accounts of what happened that evening. In some versions of his story, Michael said he waited in the car through two songs before he checked on his wife and found her hanging. In another story, he said he stayed in the car for 30 minutes. He even changed his story again and told Sarah's mom, Barbara, that Sarah was shimmying between the fence and the building, a maneuver she had done many times before when she tripped and fell into the hose. According to Barbara, she found the story to be quite ridiculous. Sadly, there was no funeral for Sarah, and her parents weren't even informed by Michael that he had cremated their daughter. He didn't even bother picking up her ashes for six long months, which he blamed on the ongoing investigation and the custody fight for the girls. Her parents also never received any of her personal belongings, and her mother had to fish one of her paintings out of the garbage. One year later, Michael was eventually charged with his wife's murder. Prosecutors contend that Michael Colucci strangled his wife with his hands during a struggle, However, medical experts couldn't agree on the circumstances of Sarah's death. In a shocking twist, two years after Sarah's death in April 2017, while Michael was on house arrest and awaiting trial, his stepfather, Ivo Colucci, shot and killed his wife, Doris, in the family jewelry store. He did so in front of Sarah's 12-year-old daughter, Bishop. Ivo was determined unfit to stand trial because he suffered from dementia and was prone to violent outbursts, just like his stepson Michael. 
The jewelry store employees often witnessed the couple's intense fights over money, which only intensified after their son's murder charge. Ivo later died in 2018 at the age of 84. As for Michael's trial, in December 2018, a mistrial was declared because the jurors were deadlocked. Over two days of deliberations, the jury cleared him of murder but couldn't agree on manslaughter. So, out on bail, Michael returned to his home on a disto island and awaited a retrial, but it was delayed once again in February 2023. Sarah's parents remain devastated and hope that one day justice will finally be served, but as of 2023, this case remains open. George Carroll was born in the early 1930s and later served as an Army corporal in the Korean War. He married a woman named Dorothy, and the couple had their first of four children in 1952. A few years later, George bought a small cottage on an isolated wooded road at 75 Olive Street in Lake Grove, Long Island, New York. According to Dorothy, George up and vanished one day in 1961 leaving behind his four children, ages 11, 9, 6, and 2 years old. They were told he went out to buy cigarettes and never came back. But sometimes that story would change, and with them being told, he took out the garbage and never came back. Growing up, George's children naturally kept asking about their father, but their mother repeatedly said, he just left and didn't come back, and don't ask, it's not important. They wanted answers, but were made to feel as if they weren't supposed to talk about their father. Dorothy never reported his disappearance to the police and later married Richard Darris, a handyman who had been working on the Lake Grove house at the time of George's disappearance. The couple ended up having one son together. All the while, George's children never stopped thinking about their father. Speculations began circulating that he might have gone back to Korea but strangely, there were also speculations that he was buried under the basement. This belief mainly came from George's brother. In 1983, Dorothy and Richard divorced, and he moved to Mexico. She had actually thrown him out of the house a few years before they divorced, after suspecting him of cheating. Fifteen years later, in 1998, Dorothy died of cancer. As she was lying on her deathbed, her son Michael asked once again if there was anything she wanted to get off her chest regarding his father, but she simply repeated the same old story. After she died, Michael purchased the house and moved in. He then started interviewing neighbors, looking for answers, and even sought the help of a psychic. One psychic went into the basement, pointed at a spot on the cement, and said, The energy is here. This gave Michael the push he needed to investigate the basement further. So, he started excavating the basement, which became way bigger than he ever imagined and spanned into multiple years. Meanwhile, Michael was desperate to speak with Richard Darris, who was now living in Laredo, Texas. He made plans to visit him and ask about his father's death, but 77-year-old Richard died just one day before Michael was scheduled to arrive. On Facebook, Richard identified himself as a long-distance trucker injured on the job in 2012 and was no longer able to work. 
Public records show he was a licensed ham radio operator, a licensed commercial pilot, and a licensed gun owner in Florida. In Florida, according to court records, he was married to a woman who obtained a temporary order of protection against him in the year 2000 before they ultimately divorced. The order forbade Richard from having any contact with the woman and to surrender any guns he possessed. Sadly, during the excavation for his father's remains, Michael suffered a stroke. Afterward, he had to rely on his two sons to take over the project. On October 30, 2018, after digging a six-foot hole and breaking through a cinder block wall that had been part of an old water well, his sons stopped and told their father to calm down to the basement. Shockingly, 55 years later, they found George's skeletal remains. He called the police, and the remains were exhumed. The remains were then sent to the coroner's office, who determined that George died from blunt force trauma to the head. After the excavation, the police found court records that proved George was still alive in mid-1963. He and Dorothy testified in a negligence lawsuit as defendants on June 20, 1963. According to the court file, he was accused of putting up a children's swing set that toppled over in July 1962, injuring his four-year-old niece. The Carrolls were told to pay the girl's mother, Dorothy Carroll's sister, $4,700 after they were found liable for the accident. An appeals panel tossed out the damage award, but New York's top court reinstated it in 1965. Strangely, Dorothy and her sister remained close for years after that. The lawsuit itself most likely didn't play a role in George's murder, but it did show that the memory of all four children regarding their father's disappearance was off by two years. Even Patricia and Jean, who were 11 and 9 when he disappeared, grew up believing he vanished in 1961, a lie most likely told to them to distort the truth. About one year after the excavation, George Carroll was laid to rest at the Calverton National Cemetery in Riverhead with honors as a war veteran. The likely scenario that led to George's demise was that Richard and Dorothy started an affair when Richard was working on the Carroll house. In 1963, divorce was still frowned upon, so it's possible that Richard killed George by hitting him on the head with a heavy object and then burying him several feet under the house. However, this is only a theory, and the truth may never be known. And as of 2023, this case remains unsolved. On December 21, 1988, a timber truck driver heading through the rural Millwood community in Ware County, Georgia, spotted something that piqued his interest. On a lonely dirt road near Duncan Bridge and Forks Roads sat an illegal dump site and within the trash, an old TV console cabinet with a piece of plywood nailed to the front stuck out to him. He pulled the plywood off, opened the cabinet, and made a horrifying discovery. Inside was a gym bag and a cement-filled suitcase, and inside the gym bag were the remains of a young girl wrapped in a brown baby blanket. She had pierced ears and was dressed in a white knit pullover shirt with a red pony on the front, white thermal pajama bottoms, and a diaper. She wore colorful bows in her hair and weighed about 20 pounds. 
Whoever placed her there went to great lengths to try and keep her hidden. While her cause of death could not be determined, she was believed to be about three years old and had died about two months before being found. The child became known as Christmas Jane Doe, as she was found only four days before Christmas, but has also been called Baby Jane Doe. A sketch artist's rendering of the child was circulated, and a bust of her head was made, photographed, and sent out to the public, but sadly, no one ever came forward to claim the child. Despite exhaustive searches from the sheriff's office, no children matching her description have ever been reported missing. The GBI has been utilizing advanced DNA testing in hopes of finding the baby's relatives, but they've been coming up empty-handed. A generous person in the community who wished to remain anonymous even recently put up a $5,000 reward for information to help identify her, but once again, nothing. For years, many speculated that the little girl was Kimberly Boyd, who went missing the year prior. But this was ruled out as Kimberly went missing 18 months before this little girl was killed and 20 months before this little girl was found. Kimberly also went missing with her mother, Sarah Boyd, and her mother's friend, Linda McCord. After attending a gospel concert in Walterboro, South Carolina, on the evening of April 3, 1987, they were driving through Dorchester County, South Carolina, en route to Orangeburg County when they disappeared. The vehicle they were traveling in was located disabled and abandoned in Dorchester County near the intersection of Highway 15 and 176 on April 5th. Sarah's credit card was used in a local mall in 1990, three years after her disappearance by an unknown person. Hopefully soon, with the use of forensic genetic genealogy, Christmas Jane Doe can finally be identified. On September 19, 1953, Donna Sue Davis was the youngest born to James and Mary Davis and soon became known as the Darling of the Neighborhood, where she lived in Sioux City, Iowa. They lived together in the bottom apartment of a duplex at 715 Isabella Street. On the night of July 10, 1955, 21-month-old Donna Sue was tucked into her crib, which sat against the wall at the foot of her parents' bed. After kissing her daughter goodnight, Mary opened the bedroom window to let a breeze in. She then went to the living room to sit with her husband while she read the paper. Just after 9.30 p.m., one of their neighbors, George Berger, saw a man cut through the hedges at the Davis's house. It was dark and too difficult to see exactly what the man was doing, but he seemed to be walking along the south side of the house. Then, for a few short minutes, the man disappeared. George was about to brush off the incident when the man reappeared, hunched over, walking across the yard, now carrying something. Around the same time, neighbors Mr. and Mrs. Leigh Feldos, the couple living behind the Davis family, were alerted by the loud barking of their dog, Rex. Mr. Leigh grabbed a flashlight and shined it toward the man, who was now stooped over and hiding behind a bush. He was determined to catch him because just two weeks before, Rex's barking had alerted him to a young man tampering with their car, and Rex had held the man at bay. Before the police took the man into custody, Leif had voiced a strong complaint about the poor lighting in the neighborhood. This time, however, he suspected the man might be carrying meat to poison Rex or other neighborhood dogs. 
Mr. Leif passed the flashlight off to his wife and returned to call the police. However, before the police arrived, the man ran through the alley with Leif on his heels. He chased the man across West 14th Street and into the next alley, which leads north toward West 15th. The man was described as being around 31 years old with a slight build and was seen wearing a white t-shirt and khaki trousers. He once again disappeared about a block away. Mr. Leif approached slowly, but by the time he reached the bushes, the man had simply vanished. Leif returned home to wait for the police to arrive when a crowd of curious neighbors began to gather. He started telling them what had just happened when he was interrupted by Mary screaming that her baby was gone. Mr. Davis had gotten up to go to bed and check on Donna Sue, and when he didn't see her in her crib, he yelled to Mary asking where Donna was. He then noticed that the bedroom screen had been removed and immediately called the police. He was unaware they were already on their way to the neighborhood in response to Mr. Leif's call about the prowler. Mr. Davis took off in his car to search for Donna Sue, but due to the heavy rains the day before, he soon became stuck in the mud, requiring searchers to stop and pull his car out. Meanwhile, neighboring cities were on high alert, and many people claimed to see a man matching the description in various places. Several other neighbors reported seeing a white male skulking around the neighborhood that night, but none could clearly describe the suspect. About 25 minutes after the abduction, a local man named Sid Goldberg, unaware of the situation, was driving past a motel in the nearby town of Elk Point, South Dakota, when he took notice of a man in a white shirt and khaki pants carrying a baby and standing beside the road. He noticed the man standing beside a black Chevrolet two-door sedan with a Nebraska license plate. A massive search was carried out all over Sioux City with everyone desperate to help. At about 11 p.m., Sid Goldberg heard the reports on the radio about Donna Sue's abduction and immediately stopped and called the Sioux City Police. The Sioux City Police notified Elk Point, South Dakota Police, who quickly converged at the same hotel Sid had passed by an hour earlier. However, the Chevrolet sedan was gone, but Sid remembered the license plate number. Sioux City Police then radioed a detailed description of the man and child to law enforcement networks in Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska, and to taxi cab companies whose cabs were equipped with two-way radios. Police also took the bedroom screen and several other items to the police headquarters to check for possible fingerprints. Unfortunately, they were unable to discover the owner of the vehicle by using the license plate number. Throughout the night, Sioux City police swarmed the city's west side in search of any type of clue. Early the next morning, a farmer called the Woodbury County Sheriff's Office and reported that he heard a baby crying in a parked car with Nebraska license plates on the road about three and a half miles east of Highway 75, halfway between the nearby towns of Sergeant Bluff and Salix, Iowa. The next afternoon, across the river in Nebraska, a farmer named Ernest Olerking was heading into Sioux City on his tractor when a bright pink garment in the ditch caught his eye. So he stopped and got out to investigate. He found a pair of small pajama bottoms with rubber pants normally worn over a baby's diaper, so he returned home and called the police. Soon after, his wife Genevieve headed for town to pick up their daughters from Girl Scout camp. 
While heading home, Genevieve decided to go look for more signs of the little girl and swung by and asked her sister-in-law Florence for help. They set out driving south on Old Back Road in the sweltering 96 degrees weather. During their drive, one of their daughters began crying and screaming because she saw a baby's body on the edge of a cornfield. They pulled over to investigate and found Donna Sue's tiny, battered body lying amongst the broken corn stalks. Florence remained in the cornfield with Donna Sue while Genevieve quickly returned home and called the police. The broken corn stalks indicated her body was likely thrown from a moving car and the autopsy report would later reveal that she had been sexually assaulted. Days after Donna Sue's body was recovered, investigators interviewed several men that fit the description of the man who was seen prowling around the neighborhood that night. One of these men was Otto Winnekamp, a 30-year-old who sometimes worked as a farmhand. He was taken in for questioning after he attempted to trade in his car for a new one. He left in the new one to go get money, but never returned. An employee noticed cigarette burns on the dashboard of his used car and promptly contacted the police, as he knew the same burns were found on the poor little victim. Winnicamp was interviewed by FBI agents, but was ruled out by his airtight alibi and was only held for the auto theft. Because the case had become incredibly well-known to the public, investigators received hundreds of tips and even some false confessions. For example, a drifter in Joplin, Missouri, 42-year-old Audrey Earl Brandt, arrived at the police station and began telling the officers how he killed Donna Sue. While his confession was disturbing, a further investigation proved that he was in another state traveling with the carnival he worked for. He later recanted his entire confession. Six months later, on December 10, 1955, a 32-year-old butcher named Virgil Vance Wilson of Ozawa, Iowa, was arrested for intoxication and disorderly conduct in Reno, Nevada. While in custody, Wilson told police he had assaulted and murdered a little girl the previous summer after stealing a car in Sioux City, 36 miles north of Onawa. The confession shared some strikingly similar details to Donna Sue's murder. The FBI met with him, but just like the drifter, he denied any involvement and was quickly eliminated as a suspect. Turns out, Wilson had been in Des Moines with friends as late as 7 p.m. on the night Donna Sue was murdered, and he couldn't have arrived in Sioux City with enough time to commit the crime. After the summer of 1956, leads slowed down and the case went cold, and James and Mary Davis would not live long enough to see justice for their baby girl. James passed away in 1996 at the age of 79, and Mary passed away on February 13, 2006. It's possible the perpetrator knew that Donna Sue lived there and where her crib was located. It's also possible that he was a local who knew the neighborhood and alleys quite well in order to get away as he did. Over the decades, a pedophile that police strongly suspected was the killer died in 2012, but with no hard evidence to prove they were correct, he has remained unnamed. As of March 2023, the home on Isabella Street still stands, and the murder of Donna Sue Davis remains unsolved. Linda Sue Durth was born in November 1959 
and grew up north of Dayton in Brookville, Ohio. At the age of 13, the community where Linda lived suffered a shocking loss when a family of three was murdered in their home in January 1973. That family was the Buck family, and they lived at 2020 Arthur Avenue in Harrison Township, 15 miles from the Dearth residence. It consisted of Gloria and Jack Buck and their two children, five-year-old Scott and six-year-old Tracy. On January 13, 1973, Jack arrived home from a hunting trip to find his wife and two children had perished in a brutal attack. It was apparent that Gloria had put up a fight and sustained numerous defensive wounds before succumbing to a gunshot wound. Jack Buck became an immediate suspect but was quickly ruled out. The 17-year-old babysitter that Gloria Buck had recently hired was arrested on suspicion of the murders and was later given a truth serum test and passed. But strangely, 13 days after the triple homicide, Linda was home from school because school was closed to honor the funeral of former President Lyndon B. Johnson. Linda's 17-year-old brother, Robert, received a phone call from their grandma asking for help with something, so he left the house for a couple of hours. He returned home around noon to their home on Diamond Mill Road, a long country road, to find Linda had been sexually assaulted and shot to death. The normally peaceful community went into a frenzied panic, fearing that a crazed killer was on the loose. Several months after Linda's murder, detectives linked her murder to the Buck family murders through firearm cartridge cases recovered from both houses. Those cartridges belonged to a Ruger 22 that was stolen from the Buck home. Interestingly, both families had placed ads in the local trading post. The Durths were selling a car, and the Bucks were selling a television. After the firearm was linked to both murders, the babysitter, Patty Brown, was exonerated because she was behind bars when Linda was murdered, proving she was innocent. As of 2023, all four murders remain unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.